Well, the Bible reading this morning is from Acts 24. If anyone needs a church Bible, just stick your hand up and we'll get one to you. Uh, and that's on page 1734 if you're looking for that in the church Bibles. Five days later, the high priest, Ananias, went down to Caesarea with some of the elders and a lawyer named Tertullus. When they brought their charges against Paul before the governor, when Paul was called in, Tertullus presented his case before Felix. We have enjoyed a long period of peace under you, and your foresight has brought about reforms in this nation. Everywhere and in every way, most excellent Felix, we acknowledge this with profound gratitude. But in order not to weary you further, I would request that you be kind enough to hear us briefly. We have found this man to be a troublemaker, stirring up riots among the Jews all over the world. He is a ringleader of the Nazarene sect and even tried to desecrate the temple, so we seized him. By examining him yourself, you will be able to learn the truth about all these charges we are bringing against him. The other Jews joined in the accusation, asserting that these things were true. When the governor motioned for him to speak, Paul replied, I know that for a number of years you have been a judge over this nation, so I gladly make my defence. You can easily verify that no more than 12 days ago I went up to Jerusalem to worship. My accusers did not find me arguing with anyone at the temple or stirring up a crowd in the synagogues or anywhere else in the city, and they cannot prove to you the charges they are now making against me. However, I admit that I worship the God of our ancestor as a follower of the way which they call a sect. I believe everything that is in accordance with the law and that is written in the prophets. And I have the same hope in God as these men themselves have, that there will be a resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked. So I strive always to keep my conscience clear before God and man. After an absence of several years, I came to Jerusalem to bring my people gifts for the poor and to present offerings. I was ceremonially clean when they found me in the temple court doing this. There was no crowd with me, nor was I involved in any disturbance. But there are some Jews from the province of Asia who ought to be here before you and bring charges if they have anything against me. Or these who are here should state what crime they have found in me when I stood before the Sanhedrin. Unless it was this one thing I shouted as I stood in their presence. It is concerning the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you today. Then Felix, who was well acquainted with the way, adjourned the proceedings. Then Lysias, the commander, comes. He said, I will decide your case. He ordered the centurion to keep Paul under guard, but to give him some freedom and permit his friends to take care of his needs. Several days later, Felix came with his wife, Tresilia, who was Jewish. He sent for Paul and listened to him as he spoke about faith in Christ Jesus. As Paul talked about righteousness, self-control and the judgment to come, Felix was afraid and said, That's enough for now. You may leave. When I find it convenient, I will send for you. 
At the same time, he was hoping that Paul would offer him a bribe. So he sent for him frequently and talked with him. When two years had passed, Felix was succeeded by Portius Festus because Felix wanted to grant a favour to the Jews. He left Paul in prison. Hello, everyone. Good to see you all. How about we pray? Dear Lord and Father, gee, we're all works in progress, aren't we? And we all face trials in life. And sometimes that actually helps us relate to people like Paul, who faces all sorts of trials, and in him we see someone who is a work in progress. Father, help us to know how to stand for your truth. And as we look at what it meant for the Apostle Paul, we pray that you would teach us something about how we might stand for truth today, even as your work's in progress. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. It's a bit of a theme running through today so far. Isn't that lovely how God does that? You know, a kid's talk following a kid's program matches in with the songs, that matches in with the Bible passage, that matches in with the story that we've been reading through. God is good like that. So, I liked this girl. I was 20. It was just after I'd become a Christian. Fudged my way into a conversation, as you sort of do. Trying to look cool, like John Bon Jovi did. <clears throat> Smiling on me from the front of the T-shirt she was wearing. This cheesy smile. And being bold to try and declare my faith, my trust in Jesus. There were so many ways <laughs> that this conversation could go wrong. <laughs> she asked... So being Christian means you believe in Jesus, right? Yeah, this is going well. He died, right? Yes, for my sins. This is better than I could have hoped for, really. This is sort of, you know, we're on a good track here. So what's the point of believing in someone who's dead? Oh, well, you see... He's not dead, but you just said that he died. Yes, but but that's not what I meant. Panic starts to set in. He, He was dead, but he rose again. Brain starts to freeze, not sure what to say. Well, John Bon Jovi must believe. He's living on a prayer, isn't he? See, you laugh because you know that song. Shame, embarrassment. I think I realized at that moment that I could pray while I was talking because secretly I was praying that God would open up a hole in the floor and that I would just fall into it and suddenly I'd be out of this circumstance. (laughs) Although I had become a Christian, I had no idea how to stand for what I knew was true and I had no idea what to say. If you, have, if you had opportunity to talk about your faith, 
would you know how to do that? If you had opportunity to talk about your faith, would you know what to say? That's my questions for you today. Welcome back to the trials and tribulations of the Apostle Paul. Since chapter 21, where we started just a few weeks ago, we've seen a revolving cycle of conflict surrounding this apostle. So what's happened? The Jews have tried to set up Paul. The Romans have then rescued Paul. Uh, That has led to an organized trial of sorts where accusations were heard. And then Paul's been given the chance to defend himself resulting in a strong reaction from the Jews, leaving the Romans mystified. Okay, there's the cycle, and we've seen that happen over and over again. So in Jerusalem, in chapter 21, 22, we saw that cycle happen. Then we see it before the Jewish Sanhedrin in chapter 23. Today, we're going to see that cycle repeat itself three more times. Uh, before Governor Felix in 24, between, before Governor Festus in 25, and then again before Festus and King Agrippa in chapter 26. Now, that is a lot of ground to cover, so uh, you might be relieved to know that I'm not going to go through it all in detail. We've sort of got the pattern, we've got the cycle that's there. What I'm going to do is I'm going to skate fairly quickly right across the top, and I'm going to do this in two bits. Uh, so we're going to look at the first two first. So let go, go with me to Acts 24. If you've got your Bibles, Acts 24. If I'm going to move through this quickly, you need to be able to cast your eyes over where I cover it. Acts 24. We've moved from Jerusalem to Caesarea. We did that because Paul was under a death plot. So for his safety, moved to Caesarea. The court is called to order. Tertullus, the Jewish lawyer, steps up and accuses Paul of three things. You can see that in verses 5 and 6. He's a troublemaker. He stirs up riots. He's a ringleader of a sect. And he has desecrated the temple. Felix turns to Paul. And in the stand, Paul gets a chance to reply, and he answers each accusation. I'm not a troublemaker, he says, verses 11 to 13. And what he does is he addresses Felix. You have been governor of this nation, and you know, what, whether, you know that I've not been a troublemaker. And those accusing me also know that I've not been stirring up crowds because I've been in the temple courts, I've been in the synagogue, I've been all around the city in full view of everyone. I've not been doing what I've been accused of. I'm not a troublemaker. And he goes on. I am a follower of the way. In verses 14 to 16, they call that a sect, which is surprising given that what I believe agrees with what they believe. Because I hold to that which is written in their Jewish law and prophets, their authoritative text. This is not a sect. And I've not desecrated the temple, verses 17 and 18. When I came to Jerusalem, I went to the temple, I brought gifts for the poor, I presented offerings, I made sure I was ceremonially unclean, I had to do that for seven days. It's hardly desecrating the temple. Three accusations, three answers. But then Paul states the real reason he's on trial. You can see it there in verse 21. It is concerning the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you today. 
That's it. Resurrection of the dead, that's the reason why we're here. And that's the end of the trial. Now, Felix, we are told, is well acquainted with the way, and so uh, he could work out the truth of what Paul was saying. He adjourns proceedings and orders that Paul gets placed under house arrest. It will be two years before Paul gets placed on trial again. Imagine being in that situation. Accused of something, answering the accusation, being stuck in house arrest for two years. Now, it strikes me that we see a similar approach today, really. Paul is a problem. He's a problem for the religious leaders. He's a problem for the political leaders. And so the way to handle this problem is to keep him contained. And think about that for today. How many, are, how many different ways do we quarantine people and issues to control the problem? As a society, we quarantine refugees and we use the time to process them. And as a society, we quarantine opinion, especially if it goes against the popular trend. Try speaking against alcohol, same-sex marriage or abortion. Quarantine opinion because that way we don't actually have to deal with it. There's no such thing as free speech, certainly not for Paul, because what he's had to say has cost him dearly. Yet what is notable is that it's not stopped him talking. Paul is standing for what he knows is true. Okay, let's push on to chapter 25. Okay, look at what happens next. Felix loses his job. Festus becomes the new governor. With a new guy in the top job, it creates a new opportunity, and so the Jewish leaders try their hand again. Strategy one, get Paul back to Jerusalem. We can ambush him there, and that will fix the problem. Festus sees right through it. So strategy number two, hold another trial. You know, it's worked so well for them so far. Let's just do it all again. Hold another trial, give it another go. The Jews, in verse 7, make, bring serious charges against him. None of them can be proved. So Paul gets his fourth chance to defend himself. Verse 8, I have done nothing wrong against the law of the Jews, against the temple, or against Caesar. In other words... If my crime is a religious crime against the law of the Jews or against the temple, then I'm clear of that. That has already been worked out in previous trials. We've already talked about that several times now. And if my crime is a political crime against Caesar, against Rome, then again, I'm clear. But Festus, well, that's up to you to decide that. So Festus then asked Paul, would you be willing to go back to Jerusalem? Well, of course not, is the answer. That's where the death plot was originated, and that is where the religious issue rests. That religious issue has already been dealt with. There's no point in going back to Jerusalem to deal with something that's already been dealt with on multiple occasions now. It is only Caesar's court that will now determine whatever, if there is any other issue uh, that's there. And so there's nothing to gain by going back to Jerusalem. 
And more, Jesus has already told Paul back in Acts 23 that he wants him to go to Rome. And so if that political matter is going to be settled, well, it's a win-win to send him on to Rome. Win because that's what Jesus said. Win because the Romans can handle it their way. But before the bags are packed, King Agrippa arrives in town with his sister and his lover, Bernice, who happens to be the brother and sister of Festus's wife. Festus and the king sit back and they wax lyrical about old times, maybe family dilemmas, and Paul's case is brought up in conversation. Festus is confounded. He outlines what he knows has happened and what he sees in Paul. And what is quite clear is that Festus knows the real reason driving the Jewish leaders. Look at what he says in verse 19, chapter 25, verse 19. They had some points of dispute with Paul about their own religion and about a dead man named Jesus, who he claims was alive. Festus can see the real reason behind this dispute was that Paul was holding to the resurrection of Jesus. Well, this piques King Agrippa's interest and he asks to hear Paul himself. So the following day, trial number five begins. Festus stands before the nobility with the high-ranking officers and the leading men of the city to open proceedings. Now, notable is that with this trial, we don't have any record of the Jewish leaders being present. And so this address is to a full Gentile audience. Festus sets the context. Verse 24, King Agrippa and all here present, you see this man... The whole Jewish community has petitioned me about him in Jerusalem and now here in Caesarea, shouting that he should not live any longer. And now look at what he says next. I found he had done nothing deserving death. Now, before we read this final trial... Allow me to make a connection for us. You may have already did that. You'll probably know your Bible so well. You've already made that connection. But let me make a connection for us. Paul has now been under arrest for over two years, and he has been the subject of false accusation four times. Alongside that, we've also seen him declared innocent four times. Pharisees in the Sanhedrin trial declare we find nothing wrong with this man. Claudius Listius, in his letter to Felix, declared that there is no charge against Paul that deserves death or imprisonment. Festus' charges, as they were laid out, the serious charges could not be proved. And now Festus declares to King Agrippa that he has found that Paul had done nothing deserving death. Now, if you know your Bible, this should be a case of deja vu, shouldn't it? Go back in time 15 years to the time of Governor Pilate and the trial of a man named Jesus. Luke, who wrote Acts, records that for us in his gospel 
in chapter 23. And Pilate hears the case against Jesus. He questions Jesus and he declares, I find no basis for a charge against this man. But the Jews were not happy with that, so they appealed to King Herod. Herod hears the case against Jesus. He questions Jesus and he finds no basis for the charges against him. But the Jews push harder again, even calling for the release of a guilty man instead of Jesus. And for a third time, Pilate declares, I have found in Jesus no grounds for the death penalty. Three affirmations of innocence, yet Jesus is found guilty. And with Paul, we see four affirmations so far of innocence, and yet Paul is still under arrest. Deja vu, you with me on this one? I wonder how resilient I would be under this type of examination. You know, records like this help me to remember that it's not wrong to stand for what is true, even when the result doesn't seem positive. In fact, records like this make me realise that if I am to stand for truth, I should expect the result to not always be positive. Maybe that's the same for you. Right, let's see how this final trial plays out. And we're going to read Acts 26 from verse 2. Picking it up again, Acts 26 at verse 2. King Agrippa, I consider myself fortunate to stand before you today as I make my defense against all the accusations of the Jews, and especially so because you are well acquainted with all the Jewish customs and controversies. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. The Jewish people all know the way I have lived ever since I was a child, from the beginning of my life in my own country and also in Jerusalem. They have known me for a long time and can testify, if they are willing, that I conform to the strictest sect of our religion, living as a Pharisee. And now it is because of my hope in what God has promised our ancestors that I am on trial today. This is the promise our 12 tribes are hoping to see fulfilled as they earnestly serve God day and night. King Agrippa, it is because of this hope that these Jews are accusing me. Why should any of you consider it incredible that God raises the dead? I too was convinced that I ought to do all that was possible to oppose the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And that is just what I did in Jerusalem. On the authority of the chief priests, I put many of the Lord's people in prison. And when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. Many a time I went from one synagogue to another to have them punished, and I tried to force them to blaspheme. I was so obsessed with persecuting them that I even hunted them down in foreign cities. On one of these journeys, I was going to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. About noon, King Agrippa, as I was on the road, I saw a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, blazing around me and my companions. We all fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me in Aramaic, 
Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. Then I asked, who are you, Lord? I am Jesus, who you are persecuting, the Lord replied. Now get up and stand on your feet. I have appeared to you to appoint you as a servant and as a witness of what you have seen and will see of me. I will rescue you from your own people and from the Gentiles I am sending you to them to open their eyes and turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God so that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. So then, King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the vision from heaven, first to those in Damascus, then to those in Jerusalem and in all Judea, and then to the Gentiles. I preached that they should repent and turn to God and demonstrate their repentance by their deeds. That is why some Jews seized me in the temple courts and tried to kill me. But God has helped me to this very day, so I stand here and testify to small and great alike. I am saying nothing beyond what the prophets and Moses said would happen, that the Messiah would suffer and as the first to rise from the dead would bring the message of light to his own people and to the Gentiles. At this point, Festus interrupted Paul's defence. You're out of your mind, Paul, he shouted. Your great learning is driving you insane. I am not insane, most excellent Festus, Paul replied. What I am saying is true and reasonable. The king is familiar with these things and I can speak freely to him. I am convinced that none of this has escaped his notice because it was not done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe in the prophets? I know you do. Then Agrippa said to Paul, do you think in that such a short time you can persuade me to be a Christian? Paul replied, short time or long, I pray to God that not only you, but all who are listening to me today may become what I am, except for these chains. The king rose and with him the governor and Bernice and those sitting with them. After they left the room, they began saying to one another, this man is not doing anything that deserves death or imprisonment. Agrippa said to Festus, this man could have been set free if he hadn't appealed to Caesar. What do we notice here? Firstly, with this trial, there are no new accusations. And so what Paul does is weave his Christian testimony into his account uh, and uh, describes what happened to him. And this will be the third time in Acts that we hear Paul's conversion testimony. And there is a lot that we can learn about this approach. Uh, look closely, because if you were to talk about your faith, then Paul gives us a helpful lesson here, both in how and what to say. Verses 2 to 3, he indicates his respect for his listener. King Agrippa, I consider myself fortunate to stand before you here today. Verses 4 to 8, he identifies with his opponent and he looks for common ground. I lived as a Pharisee. I've been brought up as a Jew. My hope is in what God has promised our fathers. 
And here you can see the real reason, the real driver behind what Paul is saying. Verse 8. Why should any of you consider it incredible that God raises the dead? And you see, right through this entire thing, Paul has been on about the same thing each time. The real reason why we're here is that he wants to talk about the resurrection of the dead. He wants to talk about the resurrection of Jesus. So, respects his listener, finds common ground. Next, he describes what changed for him in verses 9 to 15. I did everything I could to oppose Jesus. I was zealous. In fact, I was was obsessively against them, trying to persecute the followers wherever I went. And then I met Jesus. It was on the Damascus Road. Jesus called me out. I received and I understood my commission. Look at me with, at verses 16. Look with me at verses 16 and 17. Paul explains why the change was so dramatic for him. He recounts what he heard from Jesus. I have appeared to you, Paul, to appoint you, Paul, as a servant and a witness of what you have seen of me and what I will show you. I will rescue you, Paul, from your own people and from the Gentiles. I have appeared, I have appointed, I will rescue. Now, put this into perspective. Put this into perspective if you can. Paul was quite happy doing what he was doing without this interruption. Before Jesus appeared, Paul was ignorant of Jesus. Before Jesus appointed, Paul had a job and he wasn't looking for a change. And before Jesus rescued, Paul would have thought that there was no, he was in no need of a rescue. Friends, is that not the same for most of us around, around us today? Is that not what we have before us with those conversations with those that may be our workplace mates or our, our family members or our sports club, those that we, we meet at the school, whoever it might be that's around us? Ignorant of Jesus, not looking for a change, not aware of any need to be rescued. Respects his listener, finds common ground, commissioned for what? Well, verse 18, a task. Jesus says, I'm sending you to open their eyes and turn them from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God, so that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. There's the goal of evangelism. It's to call people from darkness to light, from Satan to God, for their own benefit. Paul's task, as a result of being saved, was to evangelize so that others would also be saved. Okay, you with me? Got the pattern so far? What's the the method here? It's, It's respect the listener. Find the common ground, commissioned for the task of evangelism. But how do I do that? Verses 19 to 23 gives you his method. I preached 
that they should repent and turn to God and prove their repentance by their deeds. Paul stands here to testify to small, to great, that Christ, that the Messiah would suffer and be the first to rise from the dead and would proclaim light to all people, to Jews, to Gentiles, to anyone. Paul spoke the gospel and called for people to change. Paul spoke the gospel and called for people to change and many took issue with him. Well, at this, Festus interrupts. You must be out of your mind, he says. And with that, Paul closes off with his appeal in verses 25 and 27. What I'm saying is true and reasonable. The king knows it because nothing's been hidden. I've spoken freely. All this has happened in full view of everyone. And with that, he turns to King Agrippa and he asks a very personal question. King, do you believe? Respects his listener, finds common ground, commissioned for the task of evangelism, explains the gospel and then calls for belief. Friends, if you have had the opportunity to talk about your faith, would you know how to do it? And if you had the opportunity to talk about your faith, would you know what to say? King Agrippa turns to Paul and says, do you think in such a short time you can persuade me to become a Christian? And Paul adds one final element to his evangelistic method. Prayer. Verse 29. I pray to God that not only you, but all who are listening to me today may become what I am. Is that not our prayer? Should that not be our prayer? God, help others to become Christian like you have helped me become a Christian. That's a wonderful prayer. In fact, I actually know that that is the prayer of Trinity Hills. I know that that's what you do. And I know that that's supported by the actions that you do every time you do what you do out in the community. And as you, as you push out to be able to hold out Jesus to the hills. Friends, here's a challenge for you this week. Start with a Christian friend if you want some practice and stand for what you know is true about Jesus. Respect your listener. Find common ground. Remember you are commissioned for the task of evangelism. So explain the gospel and then call for belief. 
and make sure you pray for all those who you will be or you are calling to Christ. And notice how King Agrippa responds. Verses 30, 31, he gets up, he says nothing, and he leaves the room. And then later he says, this man is not doing anything that deserves death or imprisonment. Jesus was accused and declared innocent, yet he lost his life. Paul was declared innocent, yet remained imprisoned. One innocent man led to the redemption of sin for all. And a second innocent man led to the message of redemption being explained to small and great alike. Seems to me that if we are to apply this passage to ourselves today, then the impossible implication is that believers should, should expect universal acceptance when we stand for truth. That's the impossible implication of that, isn't it? Or worse, that if, if what we say is not accepted, that it gives us permission to give up and say nothing at all. That's got to be the impossible implication of this passage, doesn't it? Or to look at that the other way, seems to me that if we're to apply this passage today, then the necessary application is that believers should know how to stand for the truth. And the believers should know what to say when they talk about Jesus. And so, friends, if you don't know how or you don't know what to say, may I humbly ask you, what are you going to do about that? Lord and Father, we pray that to small and great alike, you would help us to stand for the truth about Jesus. Prepare us to know how to talk about Jesus and train us in what to say about Jesus so that in short time or long time, those listening to us will give their lives to you. We ask this in Jesus' name.